Good evening, church family. It's great to be here with you. Can everyone hear me okay? Thanks for your kind words, Josh, of encouragement. Um, It really has been a joy and an honor to serve you all, to serve alongside Josh and Josh and MVH and Ken and Tom and Jason and Tim, Mike Wearsma over the past six years as elders and so grateful for you all. It's going to be a little hard to take a year off. I think it's going to be good, and I'm looking forward to returning back uh, in 2024. Um, I'm still going to keep serving. Uh, you're not not going to see me. Uh, I'll be here, um, still leading a community group, still participating in, in leading worship, um, but I'm really grateful for the time last six years. So uh, before we jump into uh, our text, let me uh, pray for us one more time. Lord, we um, acknowledge that we need you. Um, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. Uh, we need your spirit to open our eyes to behold wondrous things from your law. We want to see Jesus. We want to know him. We want to behold him in his glory. So now, Lord, would you uh, allow the word of Christ to dwell richly in us for the glory of your name. Amen. One of the most important themes throughout Scripture is humility before God. Humility before God. There are dozens and dozens of verses we could all go to right now to prove that point, but a few verses on humility and God's grace and favor to the humble. Here's just a few. Isaiah 66 verse 2. All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. James 4, verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. 1 Peter 5, 5. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humility is an important theme throughout all of Scripture. But what is humility? How do we define it, and how do I know if I'm a humble person? C.S. Lewis offers us a very helpful definition of Christian humility. It goes like this. You may have heard it before. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. And I think that is just a beautiful way to say it. We all want to be more like that, don't we? We hear that and instantly we say, yeah, I want to be more humble. I want to be more like that. But this definition also presents a problem. We struggle to live that out. We are proud people. We struggle with pride. We all struggle to live humbly before God and before others. In Philippians 2, 
We read verses 3 through 11, but I'm only going to be preaching on verses 3, 4, and 5. Okay, So 3, 4, and 5 is our text tonight. In Philippians 2, 3 through 5, I want us to see one main idea. One main idea. By looking at Jesus, we are changed into humble people. By looking at Jesus, we are changed into humble people. And I want us to see two freedoms that we enjoy as we pursue humility. Two freedoms as we pursue Christian humility. And then one more important point before we get to the end. Let's jump in. Freedom number one. We see this in verse three, first part of verse three. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. So this is Paul's command. And this is the the negative side of the command. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. A brief background to this verse and the, and the, the verses that follow. Uh, Philippians 2, 3 through 11 really flow out of a broader argument that the Apostle Paul is making to the Philippian believers. And that's namely, be unified in the gospel. Unity in the gospel. He's writing to them from prison and he knows the church in Philippi needs to hear these words, these exhortations, these commands to be unified in the gospel. And it turns out, so do we. We need to hear these words today as well. He says back in chapter 1, verse 27, Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Or, another way to translate it, behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul's saying you are no longer citizens to your former way of living. You are citizens of God's kingdom. So, let your life reflect that citizenship. Behave as a citizen worthy of the gospel. Paul wants their lives to reflect the unity and love of the gospel. He continues saying he wants them to stand firm in one spirit, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, to have courage in the face of opposition, and to accept suffering as a gift of following the Lord Jesus Christ. And as chapter 2 begins... Paul continues by essentially asking the church some rhetorical questions. Chapter 2, verse 1, he asks some rhetorical questions, and this is his way of reminding them of their true reality, the reality of what life is like in Jesus Christ. And you hear kind of an emphatic yes behind all of them, right? Is there any encouragement in Christ? Yes. There is abundant encouragement. Is there any comfort from love? Yes. So much comfort. Is there any participation in the Spirit? Is there any fellowship in the Spirit? Yes, absolutely. Fellowship in the Spirit. Any affection and sympathy? Yes. And yes. Paul's saying, don't forget these. Don't forget this. This is what is true of you. For you are in Jesus Christ. 
So then Paul says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love. Paul wants to see the church unified in the gospel. And now we get to verse 3, and he wants to draw out one, one of the most foundational aspects of unity. And that is their humility toward one another. So this brings us to our first point. Our first freedom. We have been freed from a me-centered life. Freedom number one, we have been freed from a me-centered life. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Paul just finished writing about some people who were proclaiming Christ out of impure motives. And he said they did it out of selfish ambition to afflict him. Paul now seems to be recalling those people, have maybe have those people in mind. He says, don't be, don't be like those people who are proclaiming Christ out of selfish ambition. Don't do anything out of, out of selfish ambition or pride. Instead, counter this pull toward advancing our own agendas and insisting upon our own ways and this draw to selfish ambition Counter that by prioritizing others in humility. Here is what humility will free you from. Here's just a few. This is by no means exhaustive at all. Here's a few things humility will free you from. Humility frees you from the need to look good. To show off your successes and your accomplishments as a way of validating yourself. Humility before God frees you from that. Humility frees you from the need to be defensive all the time. You don't need to defend yourself and prove your worth. Humility frees us from the need to be right. Humility frees us from the need to always have the last word. And humility frees us from wasting our lives in empty pursuits. We have been freed from a me-centered life. One of the aspects, I believe, that helps us to abandon this me-centered life, this pursuit of a me-centered life, is accepting our smallness. And not just accepting our smallness, but rejoicing in our smallness. James 4.14 says, What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. We were just sitting at our dining room table last week or the week before. And Melody put out a steaming pile of vegetables in the middle. And the steam was just coming up. And just at that moment, I just said, Kids, see that vapor? That's my life. It's gone. I couldn't even catch it. I couldn't even see the end of it. That's how quick our lives go. That's how small we are. Abandoning this me-centered life comes by accurately seeing our lives for what they truly are. Little, short lives, but lives that are part of God's grand story of redemption. 
The conclusion of J.R.R. Tolkien's story, The Hobbit, uh, Bilbo Baggins has returned home, and he's reflecting on his adventures with his friend Gandalf. This is how The Hobbit uh, concludes. Bilbo begins, Then the prophecies of the old songs have turned out to be true after a fashion. Of course, said Gandalf, and why shouldn't they not prove true? Surely you don't disbelieve the prophecies because you had a hand in bringing them about yourself. You don't really suppose, do you, that all your adventures and escapes were managed by mere luck just for your sole benefit? You are a very fine person, Mr. Baggins, and I am very fond of you. But you are only quite a little fellow in a wide world after all. And then Bilbo replies, thank goodness. And he handed him the tobacco jar. (laughs) You and I play a small part in the grand story. And that is a good thing. Being a big deal is a big burden. There's a joyful relief to know that the whole wide world does not rest on our shoulders. It does not rest on our shoulders and it does not revolve around us. Accepting our smallness helps lead us to humility before God and humility before others. So that's freedom number one. Freedom from a me-centered life. That's freedom from. Freedom number two. Humility frees us to see others. Humility frees us to see others. This is from verses 3b through verse 4. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The counterbalance to selfish ambition to a me-centered way of life, is humility. A humility that notices others and prioritizes them above ourselves. Though Paul doesn't use these exact words here, this seems to fit in with his frequently used put-off-and-put-on motif. He uses this in, in his other letters. Put off the old way of living that belongs to your former way of life, who you were apart from Jesus Christ. That way of life that is not behaving as citizens worthy of the gospel. But now put on. Put on the new man. Put on love. Put on humility that does belong to your new way of living. The Apostle Peter also picks this up when he says in 1 Peter 5.5, 5, we read this verse earlier, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. We are called to put on the clothes of humility. Uh, It's Christmas season, and so we can anticipate a lot of get-togethers and parties with friends and family over the next few weeks. And just imagine uh, a really nice dinner party you've got an invitation to. And it's at a very nice restaurant with some close friends. And you show up in your comfy sweatpants and a t-shirt. An outfit like that is not really befitting the occasion. We would want to dress up in a 
me, I would dress, try to dress up in a nice suit. Something that would be more fitting for an occasion like that. So just like putting on nice clothes for a fancy dinner party befits the occasion, so putting on humility befits a citizen of the gospel, citizen of heaven. Humility frees us to see others. Paul says, in humility, count others, see others, think of others as better than yourselves. Notice what Paul says next in verse 4. Rather, uh, what he's really not saying. Let me draw this out here. He's not saying, ignore your interests and your needs and then look to the interests of others. Paul doesn't say that. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, look to your own interests and to the interests of others. Take the same care and attention that you have perfected for yourself and turn that toward others. Because the truth is, we are all pretty much experts at looking out for ourselves, aren't we? I do a great job attending to my needs and my desires. Paul gives us a beautiful example of this in Ephesians 5, verses 28 through 30. Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Caring for yourself looking to your own interests is not selfish, but caring just for yourself is selfish. Paul's saying, don't look out just for yourself. Care for your own interests and to the interests of others. Humility frees us to see others. Loving others and looking out for the interests of others is uncommon in the world, but It should not be uncommon for the people rescued by the grace of Jesus. What would it look like for you and I to look to the interests of others? What would it look like? I just want to propose three ways. Again, this is nowhere close to an exhaustive list. But there's three ways I think we can take practical steps in looking to the interests of others. The first is pray. Pray, it's like, yeah, duh. But do you pray to see the needs of other people? I don't enough. I would encourage you to pray. Ask God to show you the needs of other people around you. Ask God to open your eyes and open your heart to the needs around you. Friends, I dare you to pray that prayer and Watch what God does. Because you know he's going to answer that prayer. Like there's no way he's not going to answer that prayer. He loves his people too much. The second way we can look out for the interests of others is by listening. Listening to others. Have you ever been in a conversation with someone who isn't really listening to you? I have. And unfortunately... I've been on the other side of that. I've been the one not listening. It doesn't feel good. Many times I've talked with my wife and we're in a conversation and realize I'm not really listening. It's not communicating care. 
It's not communicating love. C.S. Lewis has this great quote from Mere Christianity. Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. Probably, all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. Humility often looks like listening well. Taking a genuine interest in what others are saying is profoundly humble. Approaching a conversation with curiosity rather than predetermined outcome. Good listening involves asking questions to learn about what's going on in someone's life. Questions that can help you find out about burdens someone might be carrying. Fears people are experiencing. Practical needs to relieve the chaos and busyness of life. Questions that will help bring out what are they joyful about? What are they excited about right now? Humble listening is a way we can look to the interests of others And I want to offer just four thoughts about listening well. I just think this is a really important part of this. Four thoughts about listening well. The first one is, humble listening values the input, perspective, and the history of others. Humble listening values the input, perspective, and the history of others. We need to remember that when we engage in a conversation, we're talking to a fellow image bearer, who brings their life experience, certain ways of thinking about the world, and oftentimes their perspectives and their beliefs might run contrary to yours. But listening well gives dignity to the one speaking, and it says, I value what you have to say. So humble listening values the input, perspective, and history of others. The second Humble listening seeks understanding and doesn't rush to judgment. It's very easy to do this. It's very easy, especially today, in social media, everything. Who can be the first to comment on what was just said over here? We don't, we're not patient. It's easy to do this. Rushing to judgment is the response du jour of our culture. Humble listening is slow in placing judgment and allows time for details and nuances to come through so that you can understand clearly. Third, humble listening can just be listening. It can just be listening by being lovingly present and not feeling the pressure or the compulsion to weigh in on every topic or to have an answer for every problem. Francis Schaeffer would say that if I only have one hour with someone, I will spend the first 55 minutes asking questions and finding out what is troubling their heart and mind. And then in the last five minutes, I will share something of the truth. Listening. Listening well. Being patient. And lastly, on on listening here, 
humble listening for the good of others is listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit. What might God want to say in this situation? Listening for the Spirit's prompting. Listening for the Spirit's voice. How can you draw the focus of a conversation to what God says is true? So, we pray, we listen, and another way we can look to the interest of others is by identifying grace in others' lives. I'm so glad that I have been around this church for the last, oh boy, last almost 15 years. Um, Men and women who do not shy away from pointing out where God is at work in my life. Like ever. Almost every group, in some way, men and women are speaking up and pointing out grace in my life. And that has made an indelible mark on my soul. The intentional practice of identifying ways the Lord is at work in others' lives is so important. Identifying where God is at work helps build faith. It may even open others' eyes to see things they had never seen before or they were completely oblivious to. I've been so helped by my brothers and sisters to see God's mercy when all I could see was my sin and my failure. I've been reminded of God's nearness when I felt like he was distant and didn't like me. It's easy to think that God is only at work in super spiritual people. God's grace only works in those people who are the superheroes of the faith. Or God only works in really just the miraculous times of life. We need to see that God's grace is at work in the everyday to average people like me in the ordinary throes of everyday life. Let's, let's draw our attention to the work of God's grace in people's lives. Grace that is truly at work. Grace that needs to be seen. And grace that needs to be celebrated. We can look to the interest of others by identifying God's grace in their lives. So, we've seen freedom from a me-centered life and freedom to see others. The last point, the last point here, humility is your new way of life in Christ. Humility is your new way of life in Christ. Paul says in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. It's tempting to think that living a life of humility can simply be reduced to a checklist, a to-do list that we could knock out over a weekend. The truth is, humbly laying our lives down for others belongs to a whole new way of living. This is who we are now. As people who have been united to Christ, by grace, through faith, we are now wrapped up into the life of Jesus And his way of thinking is now to be our way of thinking. We have the mind of Christ, Paul writes to the Corinthians. 
Paul says, have this mind, have this way of thinking among yourselves. Paul's concern for the Philippians' way of thinking was linked ultimately to their way of living. His concern is for the believers to live out this humble mindset that is characterized by the Lord Jesus Christ. Every part of Jesus' story is drenched in humility. Every part of his story, every part of our Lord Jesus Christ, his story is drenched in humility. Jesus, the second person of the triune Godhead, eternal, uncreated God, one with the Father and the Spirit for from all eternity. He left the praises of heaven to become like us, to take on human flesh, exchanging the adoration of angels for the womb of a teenage girl. Jesus humbled himself to be born of a virgin. The incarnation of the Son of God would set in motion all the events that the prophets had long foretold, that a Messiah would come. A Messiah would come and he would bear the sins of the people. This miraculous event that the earth has waited for for thousands of years has finally arrived. And the angels came and announced this amazing news to a few shepherds in the field. How humble. How completely unassuming. How humble. No fanfare, no celebration. God became man and almost no one knew about it. It stings to say that for how much I try to be noticed by people and Jesus took the low road. No one knew about it. How's that go how's that for going under the radar? <laughs> the incarnation of the Lord Jesus was a supreme act of humility. But our Savior went lower still. This Jesus who for us and for our salvation became incarnate of the Virgin Mary, was not born in a palace, but in a barn, and laid in a filthy animal trough where donkeys drooled on him. They drooled on the one who spoke them into existence. What humility. Jesus He was born into poverty and labored as a carpenter alongside his father. When foxes found holes to sleep in and birds of the air found nests to live in, Jesus, the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power, had nowhere to lay his head. Such humility. But, Our Savior went lower still. 
when his disciples should have been bowing down in awe and in reverence to him. Jesus, their Lord and teacher, was the one who stooped down to wash their feet. He serves them. The Son of Man truly did come not to be served, but to serve. Jesus' life was a life of humble service and sacrificial love to those who had nothing to offer him. He gave, and he gave, and he gave. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. He was rejected, and he was despised. How much lower could he go? Answer, lower still. Jesus' humility and love led him all the way to Calvary, where he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, suffering a gruesome criminal's death. Jesus willingly humbles himself to bear our sin and our punishment. The sinless one becomes sin for us. The righteous one became a curse for us. The innocent one suffered for the guilty. This is how low our God went in love and in humility. Thinking about the story of Jesus, doesn't that set verses 3 and 4 kind of on its own? And doesn't it make a lot of sense now? We're called to set aside selfish ambition, set aside pride. And when we look at Jesus, how could we not? When we look at his humble life, how could we not? When he perfectly prioritized others to his own detriment, how could we not do the same? So if Christian humility is not thinking less of ourselves, but thinking of ourselves less, that's the definition we started with, how do we become humble? Martin Lloyd-Jones ultimately tells us this. There's only one way to be humble, and that is to look into the face of Jesus Christ. You cannot be anything else when you see him. That is the only way humility, that is the only way. Humility is not something you can create within yourself. Rather, you look at him. You realize who he is and what he has done, and you are humbled. We're called and commanded by the Apostle Paul, by God tonight, to forsake a me-centered life. We're freed to forsake the me-centered life, and we're freed to look to the interest of others. But the fountainhead of all humble service to others comes when we look intently at the person of Jesus Christ. When we stare into the face of Jesus, seeing what he has done for us, how he has served us, how he has loved us, we are being changed 
into a humble people for the glory of his name.